0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening, and and welcome to the GTC Lectures for 2014. We're we're delighted, at last, to be in our refurbished lecture theatre, support for which was generously provided by the Wolfson Foundation as part of the first phase of the College's Advanced Study Centre. Those of you who have been camping in here for one or two intermediate events will uh, certainly like to know that you can get out both ends now, and, and, and if you decide to leave through the back end after the lecture, you can come up our wonderful new um, staircase um, at that end. Once again, the academic committee which organises these lectures seems to have touched a nerve, caught a wave, or however you want to put it. We're talking about the tyranny of the norm at a time when public policy is increasingly structured around big data and its analysis, when social media seem to be flattening out rather than enhancing spontaneity and originality, and otherness of all kinds seems to be increasingly suspect. And we're going to pursue aspects of that dilemma over the next five weeks. I'm delighted to welcome as our first speaker the very distinguished creative writer and critic Adam Mars-Jones. Adam is no stranger to the college, having contributed to our literature and medicine series last year. He's a wonderfully innovative, creative writer and a generous and deeply thoughtful critic. I've just finished reading his long essay on Philip Roth in the, in the current uh, London Review of Books, and as I did so, I oscillated between two reactions. One was, that's exactly right, and the second was, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> uh, he really does um, write beautifully in, in critical mode. He was film critic for The Independent between 1986 and 1997 and The Times between 1998 and 2000, and I suspect that will structure um, some of his talk um, tonight. <clears throat> One of Adam's main characters, John Cromer, who appears in the novels Pilcrow and Sedilla, profoundly helps to set the agenda for our series. He is disabled and gay, but he also encapsulates the triumph of the human spirit. He famously describes himself at one point as one of nature's ventriloquists rather than one of her dummies. And we're all looking forward to hearing what his creator has to say tonight under his title, Cinematically Challenged. Ladies and gentlemen, Adam Marsden.
1: I've been told what my qualifications are. In fact, I think I have uniquely disqualifications. I've never taken a film class in my life. I've only watched movies. I have no medical background and I'm not disabled. So that seems to me I'm perfectly disqualified to give this talk. On the other hand, it should be said that it's hard to imagine what representing a disability would be because blind experience is different from deaf experience. To be born disabled is a different experience from coming upon it later in life. But this is a subject which Hollywood has informed us to a large extent. I mean, Hollywood was uh, mainstream cinema was the dominant medium of the 20th century, and it taught us a great deal about things such as smoking, twins, love. Uh, I, it took me so long to realise that it wasn't compulsory for American couples to have separate beds in in life as it was in the films. I mean, it structures our imagining to a large extent without having any explicit educational agenda, there's an osmotic sense that we absorb our ideas of what certain states, often quite foreign to ourselves, are like through the medium of film. And disability is an example of that. So I'm going to choose. Uh, any element of suspense is immediately cancelled by the titles <laughs> of the film up there, which I apologise for, but, uh, but there it is. Blame Mr Gates and his very transparent technology. <clears throat> I'm going to show that I'm an intellectual probably by extreme ineptness in handling what I have to do here. Now, there we go. We're going to start with a fairly famous sequence <coughs> from a very famous film, a film from 1946 called The Best Years of Our Lives, made by William Wyler. Sorry, I hope that is going to
0: Take this harness off. I can wiggle into my pajama top. I'm lucky I have my elbows. Some of the boys don't, but I can't button them up.
1: I think that's, that's where we came in, I think. Very good. So I think a scene of some intensity and intimacy more than would be expected from a film that is dealing with the rehabilitation of a group of combatants on their return to America after the war. Now, uh, the actor we just saw, Harold Russell, uh, was uniquely given two Oscars for that performance he got the Oscar for Best Actor in a Supporting Role, and he got a special Oscar for Services to the Disabled. And I think the reason is, because it's a unique achievement, the reason is that the Academy had already decided that he deserved something or that the nation deserved a boost, and they hadn't suspected that the Academy, in its tenderness and wisdom, would would, uh, give the performance its separate accolade. However, uh, normally an Oscar is the pathway to a greater career. Uh, This actor, Harold Russell, could act to a certain extent. He could certainly project his personality. But he couldn't act undisabled. And he didn't get another film role for 33 years. And he was, I think, also the first person to sell an Oscar because he needed to. So he's a special case of the way the mainstream celebrates somebody in a slightly hysterical way for being part of something that he's not really part of. And yet his his history is interesting, to me at any rate, because it turns out that he was spotted by the director of the film in a training film, uh, in a film made for the army about disabled veterans. Not only that, but he actually had... He lost his limbs while making a training film. In other words, I'm not saying he didn't see combat. He may have done. I'd need to research that. But how he lost his arms was an explosion of dynamite while making a training film to do with the handling of dynamite. And I'm not saying in the least that he was was to blame for it. But he is on the cusp between a war wound and an industrial accident in uniform, a rather uneasy space. And it may have been rather strange for him to be incarnating the returning veteran, when his wound was not gained overseas. Uh, but I think there is something about the disabled body, as represented here, which has presence, which has dignity, and which somehow has a, a tonic effect. It doesn't move you to pity as much as the film music seems to think it would. It Maybe there's a slightly old-fashioned gender um, assumption, which is that a wife is a special case of nurse, or at any rate that devotion from a woman need not necessarily be sexual, and that her fulfilment is her sacrifice, as he's made a sacrifice. But even so, this needn't be as, not exactly confrontational, but as intense a scene as I feel it is. And we move forward, I mean, it's it's a matter of fact that after wars, there tends to be a surge of representation of the disabled because war creates disability on a fairly large scale. And it, takes, uh, it means that there are, by and large, young men with a sense of entitlement who may, act, uh, may be activists for change. I think in America, the amount of disabled provision on street corners and public transport has a lot to do with the wave of disabled uh, returning soldiers from Vietnam. Uh, and that is the context. The Vietnam War is the context for this film, although made long after the war was over. The next film we, uh, we're going to see an excerpt from is Forrest Gump. Not one of my favorite films, but fascinating in this bit of representation, if none other.
0: That's all I have to say about that. It was a bullet. But... bullet that jumped up and bit you. Oh. Yes, sir. Bit me directly in the buttocks. They said it was a million dollar wound, but the army must keep that money because I still ain't seen a that million dollar. The only good thing about being wounded in the buttocks is the ice cream. They gave me all the ice cream I could eat. And guess what? A good friend of mine was in the bed right next door. Lieutenant Dad, I got you some ice cream. Lieutenant that ice cream. It's time for your bath, Lieutenant.
1: So that is another disabled body, but the actor in the film, Gary Sinise, is not himself disabled. So this marks the point at which digital special effects can take away from the disabled body the only thing that it seems to have to offer, which is itself. So this is a, a sort of reverse prosthesis. I think this is a digital amputation that I find rather troubling because it's one of the aspects of our culture that we find issues far more easy to deal with when they're separated from the bodies that experience them. We're far more likely to enjoy a film about a fat person knowing that it's Gwyneth Paltrow in a fat suit, who is only beautiful on the inside. And similarly, that we uh, that when we watch Brad Pitt ageing in The Strange Case of Benjamin Button, it doesn't threaten us all at all because... Age is being removed from the bodies in which it takes place. And I think something similar is happening here, even though to argue against myself, it would be very strange if Howard Russell in the first clip vented any of the negative emotions to do with disability. It would be almost unbearable to watch. It would hardly qualify as entertainment if we watch somebody saying how miserable they felt, how full of rage and despair they felt. Because I'm writing a novel whose hero is physically disabled, I sometimes get to uh, address people on that basis. And at one conference I went to, there was a man who said, in the most piercing possible way, it was a man who'd had a stroke before he was 40, and he said, ''I hate being disabled and I'm very bad at it.'' And you could absolutely ring with the sense of what he was saying... And yet he was off topic for the conference because the conference was exactly about the triumph of the human spirit (laughs) and the negative emotions that you are overwhelmingly likely to experience when your life is derailed by a dynamite explosion while you're making a training film and the enormous moral, intellectual, emotional effort to reconstruct a person on the far side of that for the body in which that took place to be voicing those emotions would hardly count as entertainment. So the fact that this veteran being lifted with those, to my mind, to my medically ignorant eyes, horribly angry-looking swollen legs, as if recently traumatised, that is powerful in a different way. Perhaps it invites us to imagine without obliging us to identify. And maybe that is where fiction films can take us to territory that is both safe and, in its own way, risk-taking. But I do slightly feel that it's a shame that we are unlikely to see disabled bodies in the cinema in the future, because technology can now reproduce that so well. I I interviewed Daniel Day-Lewis at the time he made his film Of My Left Foot, which is, I think, probably the high point in terms of somebody attempting a realistic portrait ...of the physical experience of disability... ...in that Day-Lewis did not leave his wheelchair between takes... ...and he refused to speak... ...except in Christy Brown's rather throttled voice... ...while he was on set. So he provoked the people around him... ...into the sort of reaction that Christy Brown himself... ...would have experienced. And he said that when he saw the script... ...he strongly felt that it should be played by a disabled actor. But he was told... That, for a start, we can't find the actor. There's nobody with that experience. And even if we could, it wouldn't be bankable. So it's either the film with you in it or no film. And those are the choices realistically presented to you. And I do understand that, but I asked him whether they'd explored the idea, because there are flashback sequences with a young Christy Brown, if they'd considered having a disabled boy to play the young Christy Brown because then, at least in 10 years' time, there'd be an adult actor with cerebral palsy who'd had that experience. And apparently that wasn't something they'd thought of. So they got a young actor to duplicate Daniel day lewiss performance as the adult Christy Brown. And again, there's the sense that there's an almost kitsch sense of authenticity. If you're absolutely trying to inhabit an experience and yet somehow excluding the people who are being represented... And I feel that there is a a tendency in culture, because we do prefer symbols to realities, consistently we do. We prefer reviews to the books they review. We prefer gossip about celebrities than the films they're in. We have a huge taste for, uh, for, for deeply processed material. And yet I think it's legitimate to say that there are choices made in the way these lives are processed and the role that is left for the people whose bodies are being represented. Uh, My third clip is from The Thing, from John Carpenter's remake, the famous 1950s horror film. And I would make a case that there are some film directors who have a genuinely non-standard idea of the body and how it functions, who have a very broad imagination not controlled by the standard definitions of beauty and ugliness. One example would be David Cronenberg. I think his film of The Fly, the remake of The Fly, is fairly extraordinary. And the moment in it that gives an audience a real frisson, and I can testify to this from my experience watching the film in the Elephant and Castle Odeon when the film came out, the moment when Gina Davis hugs Jeff Goldblum in his disintegrating body, that was the moment where people absolutely jumped because it stopped the horror being at a distance. It was in intimate space and it could be held and reassured and there were emotions within it however little the character wished to voice them, they were there. And even more, I think David Lynch has a very wayward sense of beauty, and the way he constructs The Elephant Man in particular, I think he's not in the least an intellectual, but he's somehow stumbled on a very rigorous way of presenting deformity so that he withholds it for a long time. There's a brief shot uh, that almost seems like a dream of this strange, pale, uh, hard a large, deformed face with the hair curling so strangely. But he teases you. He withholds your view of the Elephant Man so that you see him from people's reactions. You see him swaddled up. You see him in silhouette. And as he watch the film, he forces you to confront... Forces is too strong. He encourages you to confront the fact that you want to see. He makes you aware of your voyeurism. And then when he does let you see he focuses and keeps looking at the face until it becomes normal. So he seems to understand that the way horror and revulsion are constructed are by giving you the the right to watch and the right to look away. And the way that film is constructed, I think, does work profoundly to make you see something that you inherently assume is ugly and repellent as beautiful as inhabitable by the imagination. Now, I think we can agree that John Carpenter is not quite in that class, and that is not the point I'm making about uh, this remake. Uh, those of you of a nervous disposition may choose to look away. Uh, it, it, the basic setup is we're in an Arctic uh, science lab where they discover a, 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 a wreck and a being which comes to inhabit people and can take them over. And they need to work out who's been taken over and who hasn't.
0: Come cool, here. It's cool, man. Come on. Yeah, yeah, man. Just relax. If anybody touches me, don't you go.
1: Get it in here
0: and bring the others. Now nobody gets out of my sight. So like the sweet are about to have yourselves a little
1: I've ever turned to the jury that anybody could have got some of my clothes and stuck
0: them up the furnace. We ain't buying that. Quit that bigger over there. What We got two friends over here. Three, three, four, five, five. You're going to have to sleep sometime, Nicholas. I'm a real life sleeper, Charles.
1: I don't know what you think you saw there but you did not see an actor offered up sacrificially to the dark gods of the marketplace. What you saw in those pre-digital days of special effects was an amputated stand-in being divested of his temporary prostheses. Um, it only occurred to me when this film came out on video, uh, on DVD, and the special effects man Rob Bottin talked with great glee about how he devised some of the effects. And it seems to me that if this is a horror film, this might be the horror in it. Because what it means is that somebody... This is the black market in disabled bodies. This is where bodies that have only their damage to offer sell that damage. And the actor playing the part of the doctor for those sequences of traumatized mutilation, is not credited, presumably because he's not actually an actor, he's not actually a stuntman. And it may be that he's working under under an assumed name because he's in receipt of a veteran's benefit or some sort of disability pay. But it seems to me that there is something really quite upsetting about the idea that there is this only visibility for disabled bodies, not as disabled lives, but essentially as as living damage. And I wonder, I I don't know a great deal about digital special effects, but I do know that it's easier to graph things together than to make them out of nothing. I wonder if in the sequence of uh, the amputee in Forrest Gump, I wonder whether that isn't Gary Sinise's head superimposed on an actual... Uh, amputee's body. It seems to me quite likely that that should be so. So it seems to me that we're gradually taking the disabled people out of the representation of disability, and that makes it about us in a way that seems to be quite reassuring. Because the moment disability becomes symbolic, which it does the moment you film it, then it becomes something to be got over. Uh, it's It's a tendency in films for a start to gender disability, blindness and deafness are overwhelmingly female in the films, in the movies, because they play into a sexual fantasy of helplessness and availability, neediness, which certainly the male gaze finds relatively untroubling. I, I don't have a, a difficulty with... I, I realise I'm coming across a very hard line and very joyless. I don't feel we should picket those theatres, at which pantomimes have uh, Long John Silver played by somebody who has two legs i don't think that <laughs> nor do i object to thrillers that exploit the weakness of a blind woman because the thriller exploits weakness if we accept a form of excitement that encourages fear and then discharges it then you can see that the the thriller like wait until dark or blind terror has a huge advantage for a suspense filmmaker which is normally you have to have suspense you have to have a shot and then show somebody who doesn't see what's happening. They're in different spaces. But you can film Audrey Hepburn in Wait Until Dark. You can film her not seeing something that you can see. It's a tremendous genre advantage. But it does worry me that it becomes... uh, There's a sense that these things, on the symbolic level, you should be able to get over. If deafness represents loneliness and uh, alienation, and if blindness represents the need to trust the world... If being wheelchair-bound is, uh, is supposedly dramatises helplessness or a sense of helplessness, the non-disabled can overcome those feelings. But I think it's very different to imagine that what we're seeing is actually a representation of disability. The, the movies can show us the outside of people terribly well. They struggle, unlike literature, to give you the view inside. So what they tend to do is find nice physical metaphors for what, for what goes on. And I think it's no coincidence that disability in the form of being in a wheelchair is very much a male condition in the films. And that's not to do with the actual incidence of being in a wheelchair, but with the symbolic role it plays. The fact that it's felt to be tragic for a man who is assumed to lead an active life defined by his activity to have that activity taken away. So we've, we've dealt with, uh, I suppose, almost dialectically, with uh, the with disabled body present and then absent but represented and then absent from the surface of the story but somehow behind it, making it possible. And we're now going to do something similar but with disabled lives. And we're going to start with a film called The Miracle Worker from 1962 and dinner time at the Keller family in about 1890. I hope. Double click. (laughs) Uh So uh, that's a a sequence which still has a certain amount of of power to shock, I think. Those actresses, uh, they shared the Best Actress Award uh, in 1960 for that, uh, and they'd been performing those roles on stage for a long run. So I think the physicality of the scene comes from them and from the theatre. If it was being filmed these days, I doubt if it would be so prolonged. It certainly wouldn't be so violent, I don't think, so confrontational. It's certainly true that... In 1890, children were disciplined as a matter of course, and the treatment meted out to Helen Keller was not exceptional. And even in 1962, those days were not so far in the past as they seem to us now. But also, I think that sequence honours Helen Kellen's resistance. It doesn't make out that you pass from a an out, state of outsiderdom to a state of being integrated by warm and soothing stages. It recognises that it is in itself a violent process and that there are potentially losses involved which those insisting that you integrate with the norm cannot know any more than you can necessarily remember them. So that it's an unusually raw account of how difficult it is to enter the world on anything like equal terms when you're so much in a minority and it's also very rare in Hollywood terms. We're going to show almost exactly the opposite, as seen from Awakenings, which was probably my Damascus moment in terms of representation of of disability, because this is a film of a very good book by a neurologist who represented his patients' experiences very sensitively, and then, in a way that I still don't understand, sold the book to Hollywood and presided over, or did not resist the selling on of things he didn't own and the denaturing of lives that, as doctor and as writer of the book, he seemed to care very much about, about the autonomy of these very inaccessible lives. The people involved were people who'd been in a sort of trance for many years after encephalitis and who were restored briefly to some sort of norm in the late 60s by the use of of a drug called uh, l dopa But in this sequence, we see not only belt and braces, but I feel what we see... It's a very short sequence, so I'm afraid I'm telling you about it in advance. So you can see exactly how horrifically it plays out in its few seconds. We have a lot of syrupy music, wistful in nature. We have a song uh, of a vaguely Hoagy Carmichaelish sort. We have Robert De Niro walking down steps, and we have a child walking up the steps at the same time. Not only that, but the child turns to look at Robert Deneau in wonder, for which, as far as I can see, there is no possible reason. He's a man walking down stairs. It's only the way we're being remorselessly manipulated by this film that encourages us to think that a child sees an adult because he's having his first unaided walk in half a century as some sort of child himself. The, the styling of this disabled man as a child, I think, is, uh, is atrocious. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's not just a failure as cinema, but actively pernicious. Sorry, it's not Hokey Carmichael, it's a woman. When I reviewed that, uh, that film, I got, by my standards, an enormous post bag. Bear in mind, this was the days before the internet, where you had to do laborious things with pens and envelopes and stamps. It was a tremendous kerfuffle to get something in the post. I had two letters, but both of them said, you couldn't handle the emotion in this movie. And my reaction was, you couldn't handle the emotion in my review, because I thought it was shameful to have not just that sequence, but there's another sequence where a nurse is trying to get attention for the patients who turn out not to be as vegetative as they seemed, And she goes in and her nurses are watching daytime television and they're chewing mindlessly. She has to clap her hands to get their attention. And the filmmaker seems to be saying, aren't we all in a trance? Couldn't we all be more fully alive? And I loathe the use of disability as a cheap metaphor because it isn't a metaphor for the people who live those lives. And in particular that film, the way it was structured, because the character played by Robert Nero retains the first name Leonard of one of the case histories in in Oliver Sacks' book. But he was two things that Hollywood finds difficult to deal with when it comes to easy identification. He was an intellectual. He was working for a PhD when he became sick. And he had a libido. So when L-Dopa restored his physical function, he wrote his memoirs and masturbated at the same time. He called himself the post-encephalitic portnoy. And and he he made improper advances to nurses. He had a backlog intellectually and sexually. He was in some ways a pest. But he was a jagged, raw, unassimilable human being not like the sweet uh, dope who walks down those steps. There's a moment in the film where the Robert De Niro character quotes from a Rilke poem, and you think, where did that come from? You know, a Rilke poem for Johnny Sixpack? The whole, the pathos of the whole thing it builds to a scene where a woman visiting a relative in her in the hospital meets Leonard in a cafe and has a sort of chaste little chat with him and is astounded to hear that he's a patient. And it, it just seemed to me the trickliness of it was appalling. And I was shocked that Oliver Sacks should be part of the advertising campaign, the, the promotional campaign, for it, it turns out he's a, a very unworldly man. And I interviewed him on a, a television programme and I said... Uh, why did you? How could you do this? Why are you on the publicity tour? And he said, I'm not. And I said, that was somebody from Warner Brothers who delivered you here. You're on the tour. Do you not know it? And after a while, he started saying, I think I had this coming. I think, Warner, I think when I'm at the ICA tonight, I'll talk about what I've done instead of the book about deafness that I'm supposed to be promoting, and Warner Bros, which will ship me home on a banana boat, he said. It was a very strange phrase. But we got a phone call the next morning saying we couldn't use the interview or that we had to recut it, uh, which I thought, was, I thought it was wrong that we, uh, that we knuckled under. But it seemed to me that this may be the worst film about disability where it's presented as a glove that any hand can slip into and learn its lessons, and yet it comes from somebody whose book was extraordinarily eloquent and seemed absolutely to respect the things in... I mean, what is it like to spend 50 years essentially unstimulated and have any personality at the end of it at all, to have any internal coherence? It's an astonishing feat. And to misrepresent that with this sort of water cannon filled with treacle seems to me quite wrong. However, we do have a slightly brighter side, or something rather different, which is another horror film, in a way, but a very imaginative part of it. This is from the first version of uh, Hannibal Lecter. Has
0: to, it, instance, has to be in total darkness. Remember to be very careful with it. But still, it's to the series. will be case you Oh that got a flash. Maybe Mr. Darren can you trying to help me out. No, that's okay. I'll take care of myself No, thanks. Go
1: on. Sorry, the dialogue is important. I'll recapitulate it. No, I'll take it. No, thanks. I'll
0: leave you twelve hundred in the morning. Right with me. Thanks, but I'll take the bus. I do it all the time. Right as me. It would be because I would like you to. How did you come to get away? Oh, they had to hire the handicapped to shape up their employment practices
1: to get this defense contract.
0: You worked out well? Yeah, well,
1: everybody they hired did.
0: You know, you speak very well, although you avoid fricatives and sibilance. At the Riker Institute for the Blind, I trained in therapy for speech and hearing impaired children. I'll probably go back to it someday. Uh-huh. You know, if you don't want to talk, that's okay. But I hope
1: you will because you're very direct and I like that and I like what you have to say.
0: I touch your face. I want to know whether you're smiling or frowning. I just uh, I just want to know whether I should be quiet or not. Take my look for it. I'm smiling. Yeah, I didn't mean to offend you. On the way, can I? My surprise. Okay, sure. Are you apprehensive? No. We're very protective. When Mr. Dallahan is watching us. No, <laughs> oh, no, I want to. In about two hours,
1: I think that ends... The scene with the tiger is a remarkable scene to me. I, it, I wouldn't be surprised if that was in a surrealist film of the 1930s, The Lady and the Tiger. Uh, and what I like about it is that it comes after a scene... I, I'm sorry if the dialogue wasn't very clearly audible. Uh, they talk rather quickly. She was saying at one point that she got the job because they, they, they were trying to shape up their employment figures by hiring the handicapped in order to get a defence contract at the laboratory where she works. And it's the rarest thing in the films to talk about the financial side of disability, which the government seems painfully aware of, I have to say, of how expensive disabled lives are. But the fact that she's very wry about it and acknowledges that a blind woman in a dark room is a relatively simple bit of affirmative action, certainly much easier than hiring somebody in a wheelchair. But she also... I like the fact that she uses her knowledge of speech... ...to be quite active with him, to put him on the spot... ...to say that she can hear his speech defect... ...and that she thinks he does remarkably well... ...but she'd like to touch his face. She's direct, she isn't passive herself... ...and she likes his directness. We, as people watching the film, know that this is a serial killer... ...who lives in an entirely bizarre, negative Blakeian world... ...of imagination and transformation by murder... But in the second part of the scene, I think all that comes in in a rather beautiful way because it shows us that evil can be imaginative in a way that good can often not be. The fact that this man understands that it would be an extraordinary experience for a blind woman to touch a a, dose, a sedated tiger. And it reminds us that nature is something to which our access is almost entirely visual. And without the visual, it's hard to say you ha- you you can access nature, and he does his best to understand. But he also is sending a message. He's saying, I'm dangerous, but not to you. I'm a tiger, but not to you. And he's also bonding with her on the basis that they're both outsiders. So I think it's a perversely very rich imagination of, uh, of scenes that are often played very trivially in films. And I particularly like the fact that they've kept the dialogue about money because you would think that the disabled lived on air, by and large, if you you trusted Hollywood accounts of it. And I'm going to end with a short clip from a film that Robert Altman's the player, which is the only clip I've ever been able to find, in which somebody is in a wheelchair for no particular reason. There is nothing odder in cinema where things are foregrounded or omitted altogether this is a scene that would work just as well if the, this defence attorney was not in a wheelchair. I very much hoped that the director, Robert Altman, who was a maverick, and who would be quite capable of casting somebody because he wanted to, it struck me, I hoped that it was somebody in a wheelchair being cast in a sort of blind way, and the same saying we talk about other forms of casting being blind, that, in other words, without considering his wheelchair boundness as an important part of the, of the story. But it isn't the case. The actor is, as it turns out, able-bodied. So there is some point that Altman is making. I don't know what it is. If, if it is a point, it's a rather subtle one. It may be just that this point in the hero's adventures, everything is so upside down that nothing would surprise him. But it's as close as I can come to a, sort of, as it were, neutral or purely factual account of somebody in a wheelchair, because some people are
0: best interest, would you sleep No, get away from that long She's the enemy. Oh. Well, Susan had a lovely time to commit the other night. I can't believe you remember it. Mr. Milgar Gerard I'm here to represent
1: you. Dick Mellon called me in on this. Here's the situation. They've got a witness and they want you to do a lineup. Now, if you say no, they'll arrest you. I'm certain of that. And even if you get identified, I'll get you off on bail.
0: Now, if this witness lives across the street from the parking lot,
1: even if she makes an identification, positive ID right now, even if very late at night. By the time I'm finished with really, it, the world will have a whole new legal standard for blindness. Not Just not keep your faith It's as close as I can come to something that takes disability as part of the world rather than either keeping it off limits, not represented, out of the world, or bringing it right to the front of the picture where we can see it's really all about us and not them.